pray. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer, our shelter in the time of storm. You are our every delight and our deepest joy. You are the author of compassion and grace, and mercy, and righteousness. There is none like you. And we are your people. We are the children of God. We have been born from above. We are related to one another by blood, not our own, but the blood of Christ. We are bound up in him. We are united in him. And Lord, everything that you have for us comes through him. And so when we talk about the reality that you are the master and we are slaves. Oh Lord, we are the richest slaves that have ever existed. And we are the happiest slaves the world has ever known. Because you, oh God, are our master. The giver of every good thing to the people whom you command to live in a manner that is pleasing to you and fills us with everlasting joy. And so we praise you. Help us now, Father, I pray. Teach us from your word. Protect us from error. Send your spirit to work in our hearts. I pray for anyone who is listening today, either in this room or down the hall or online, that they would, those who don't know Jesus Christ and are enslaved to someone or something else, that today would be the day they are transformed and reborn and been made new. And Lord, we know that you do that through the gospel. Create faith in their hearts, O Father, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's always amazing to me whenever I prepare to preach a passage of Scripture here because I... I discover that the word of the Lord is so much deeper and richer and more wonderful than I can ever imagine. At least, that's been my experience over the last 39 sermons in the book of Romans. What a delight it is to stand before you week after week and unfold the word of God in your hearing. And you only get the bits and pieces that I can put together in one hour's time. I'm confident as we begin another message from the next passage in Romans 6 that you'll be expecting me to remind you that the gospel not only justifies us, but the gospel also sanctifies us. And not only changes who we are, but it changes what we do and how we do it how we live. And if that indeed is your expectation this morning, I, I think you're not going to be disappointed. Paul has been teaching us that it is not possible for godless, hell-bound sinners to be born again without experiencing a serious change of heart. A heart that bears the fruit of a changed life, changed desires, changed behavior. 
And specifically, we learn that the first change that takes place in the new believer's life is that they receive a new relationship with sin. As I said a few weeks ago when we started on this theme from this text, you may remember me saying, you say that you have a new relationship with Jesus, and I'm, I'm glad for that. My question is, do you also have a new relationship with sin? Because that's what Paul is talking about. Whereas before Christ, your life was characteristically marked by the practice of sin and delight in sin, now you hate your sin and long for the day when we will one day be freed from its power and ultimately from its presence. Even so come, Lord Jesus. This week, however, Paul is determined to teach us that as believers in Jesus Christ, we no longer have a relationship. We, we, we have a new relationship with sin, but not just that. He also now wants us to see that aside from us having a new relationship with sin, we now also have a new relationship with righteousness. It's different. At the moment of salvation... We who, we who have been declared righteous by God start becoming righteous in the way that we live. Not self-righteous, not the condemnation of others, but rather righteousness in the sense that we strive in everything to be, here's a key word here, obedient. Obedient to the Lord and pleasing to the Lord. We want to please the Lord. This is what Paul has in mind for us today. So let's stand together and why don't we take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter, five, uh, Romans chapter 6 and we will read we're actually going to read from 15 all the way to the end of this passage. Now usually when I get up here I always confess to you that I bit off more than I could chew, and there's no way we're going to be able to cover all of this. Uh, this week, uh, I, I figured I'd, I'd back that down, and uh, when I got into my study, I realized I'm going to be able to cover all the, all the rest of this chapter today, God willing. <laughs> so let's read. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And, ha and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to even more lawlessness, so now present, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. 
But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I know that many of you, when you were a young person, probably eager to learn how to share the gospel, you probably learned that last verse. And when I was preparing for this, mentally a couple of weeks ago, I realized we're coming up on this great verse. And most of us have memorized it and have no idea what the context is. And so it's, it, it'll be a sweet thing to see the context. Unfortunately, there are many professing Christians who think that obedience to God is not required. It's not required now that we are under grace rather than being under law. But my responsibility this morning is to correct that error. It's a pervasive error. It's an error that is alive and well in Fort Worth, Texas. Someone will say, but I thought, I mean, you've taught us over and over and over again for all of these years that, that salvation is by grace, through faith, and not by works of righteousness. How can we be saved by grace alone and yet still be required to obey the commandments of Scripture? Well, that's an excellent question. And I think Paul will answer it for us in the next 40 minutes or so. I have a simple outline, probably too simple. Number one, the controversy. Number two, the correlation. And number three, the conclusion. I know that doesn't bless your life, but at least it will give us some hooks to hang our thoughts on. Let's begin with the controversy. You're already familiar with this. Once again, we begin by hearing from the opposition. In verse 15 of Romans 6, we read, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? This was basically the same controversial statement that uh, the detractors mentioned earlier. Paul mentions that they had said earlier. And the previous question was this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul had made such a big deal about grace. They started thinking, you know, he's, he's gone off the rails. And I argued a couple of weeks ago, if you're not close to going off the rails when it comes to grace, you don't understand grace. Both of these questions imply the charge against Paul that he was teaching a kind of antinomianism, which is a false doctrine that says that since all of our sin is covered by the superabounding, all-forgiving grace of God, we don't have to be concerned about sin anymore. We can just live however we please. We can live however we please. I can do what I want and not worry about what God thinks because he's already taken care of all of my sin, past, present, and future. I'm good. Let's just live. Let's just enjoy life. And if we sin along the way while doing that, 
It's okay. You know what Paul's response to that is? Meganoita. May it never be. May it never be. You might remember in the final verse from last week's message, chapter 6, verse 14, it said this, Sin will have no dominion over you because you are no longer under law, but under grace. So here's a question. What does it mean to be under law? To live under law means to live under the tyranny of attempting to earn justification by obeying the law. The proper name for that theologically is legalism. If I can just keep the law good enough, then I'm in with God. To be under grace, however, means to live under the life-giving rule of him who justifies the ungodly by faith alone, apart from any works of righteousness. It is not the works of righteousness that save you, but that doesn't mean there's no place for righteous works. In fact, as we'll see here, Paul's very strong on this. If there are no works of righteousness, then you may not belong to the Lord. I know that's a strong statement, and I don't want to push it too far, but I'll, I'll let the Holy Spirit unpack this for us. To be under grace means that we live under the life-giving rule of him who justifies the ungodly by faith alone. So Paul's opponents seem to be suggesting that since we are no longer under law, but under grace instead, sin is something that we, it just doesn't matter anymore. But Paul seems to be personally offended by such a statement. And his response was simply this, may it never be, may it never be in a thousand years, may no one ever, ever, ever think that. It is so wrong, it should never be allowed to enter your mind. Again, this is the strongest term of negative response in the Greek language. Paul couldn't have made it any clearer or stronger. True believers do not pretend to have a license to sin. We don't have carte blanche on what we do and how we live. True believers are done with sin. They hate their sin. They're quick to repent of sin whenever they become aware that they have sinned. In Christ, they have, they have been set free from the dominion of sin. They no longer have to sin. You don't have to sin anymore. Their old self has been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin, you remember, we talked about last week, was who we were in Adam before Christ. Who we were before Christ. That body of sin, God is reducing to nothing. The believer's relationship with sin has changed. It's radically changed. And knowing what we have learned from in the past five chapters of Romans, this should not be controversial. 
But in evangelicalism, somehow it's become controversial. And I'm not going to get into the controversy. I'm just going to preach this text. And that brings us to the second point. Seeing the controversy, we've got a handle on the controversy now. And now the correlation. Here Paul develops an illustration or an analogy, a correlation, to help him communicate what he wants us to learn. And the illustration is based on the theme of slavery, as we've seen, as we read this text a minute ago. Paul admits in verse 19 that this is not a perfect correlation. It's not the perfect illustration. It's certainly an inspired uh, uh, presentation. Nevertheless, he understands that, that, um, that this illustration is sufficient for him to make his point. And it's a very simple point. Look again at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are the slave of the one whom you obey? Here, Paul is simply establishing the fact that everyone who lived under Roman rule in the days that Paul lived, they had a, a clear understanding. They, this was perfectly intuitive to them. This whole theme of slavery, the analogy of slavery, they totally get it. They didn't need explanation because everywhere they looked, there were slaves. In the Roman Empire of the first century, um, there was slavery everywhere. This was a world of slavery. It's been estimated that there were, about, there were about 60 million slaves under Roman rule in Paul's day. And that means about one-third of the population of larger cities like Rome were slaves. One-third were slaves. Unlike American slavery... In the 16th and 17th centuries, there were a number of ways that a person could become a slave back in Roman times. You could become a slave by committing crimes against the state. You could be, uh, you could be subject to becoming a slave as a prisoner of war. But you could also become a slave by indenturing yourself. And this was very common. You could indenture, indenture yourself to someone to pay back a debt or, or maybe to learn a trade. There's no way I'm going to learn how to uh, hold a job or, or learn a skill unless I have someone teach me. And so they would give themselves over as a slave for a designated period of time, maybe uh, very commonly seven years, and then they'd be free. But during that time, they were the slave. It seems to be the kind of slavery that Paul's referring to here. Notice the word present in verse 16. It means to make oneself available to another. The idea here is that a, a man will find himself in such need that he becomes willing to present himself to someone as a good prospect to be a slave. You're selling yourself to be a slave whether to pay off a debt or for some other reason. Paul's not concerned about that. His point is, frankly, very simple. Namely, whoever you become obedient to is your master. Whoever you become obedient to, that person is your master. 
Said more simply, if you are a slave, you have a master. And if you have a master, you are not, listen carefully, if you have a master, you are not free to do as you please. Rather, you do whatever your master requires. By definition, the slave lives to obey his master. That's what slavery is. You live under the obedience and under the authority of your master. You don't live for yourself. You don't have freedom. You have the freedom to do his will. And this lends clarity to Jesus' statement, doesn't it? In Luke chapter 6, verse 46, when some who called themselves disciples gathered around him and he said, he said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? Why do you say, kurios, kurios, but you're unwilling to obey me? What's he saying? I am not your master, and you are not my slaves. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? The word here for slave, by the way, is doulos. And wherever it's used in the New Testament, it means slave. One who lives in obedience to another. And this is a major theme in our text for this morning, as evidenced by the fact that doulos is mentioned eight times in this chapter. Eight times. In chapter 1, Paul refers to himself as a doulos, a slave. And so often, you will read in your particular translation it'll be translated as servant. And, and servant, you know, is kind of like a waiter at, at your favorite restaurant. They come, they, you pay them, and they're off. Uh, it's, it's a little different. This master-slave relationship. It's very common for Paul to refer to himself and other believers as slaves, as doulos. In fact, one of the texts that Randy used this morning was from... Um, 1 Corinthians 4, and it says this, this is how one should, be, should regard us, as servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And, and I would just say, if we could retranslate this, this is how one should regard us as slaves of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. God has given Paul the mystery of the word of God and has told him to take it to the ends of the earth. And Paul said, I'm in. But it wasn't a question. Will you? It's not a question. It is just, go. I'm the master. You are the slave. I say, come, you come. I say, go, you go. I say, wake up, you wake up. I say, go to sleep go to sleep. You hear us often say things around here like, you don't know how to be a parent until God tells you. You don't know how to love your wife or your husband until God tells you. In chapter 1, Paul refers to himself as a slave. And this is, this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. 
Why does he refer to himself as a slave, a doulos? Well, because he has entered into a, a life of obedience to Jesus. This is his whole point. He has entered into a life of obedience to Jesus. Jesus is Paul's master, and Paul is the Lord's slave. Now notice the phrase that Paul says next, verse 16. Verse 16, he says this. You are the slave of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience that leads to righteousness. In other words, there are only two masters in this illustration. There are only two masters, and this corresponds to the spiritual reality. There are only two masters to choose from. You can either be a slave of sin or a slave of righteousness. And as far as this illustration is concerned, there are only two masters in the world. Everyone in the world has one of two masters. There aren't any others. There's not five to choose from. There are only two. You used to be a slave to sin, but if you are a child of God, you are now in Christ. Now you are a slave to righteousness. And later on he will say, slave to God. This is a radical change. A radical change takes place when a person trusts in Jesus. A radical transaction happens when you are justified and reconciled to God. This is what happened when you were justified, when, when you were born again. You remained a slave, but you experienced the change of masters. You now have a new master. And this is what everyone has to reckon with in this passage. Notice how Paul describes this transition, he says. Uh, I, I want to point out some transition terms that Paul makes clear here. He says this, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin, having become obedient from the heart. It's a transition. Something has changed. Verse 18, and having been set free, that's salvation, from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. This is the transition. You have moved from being the servant of one master to being the servant of another master. And it's all part of this narrative that the Lord gives us throughout his teaching and throughout Paul's teaching. And I mentioned it in my prayer this morning that the Father has rescued us, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We are now slaves of King Jesus. The phrase, you became obedient, by the way, is passive. The verb here is passive. You don't become obedient from the heart by your own will and determination. God had to unshackle you from the domain of sin and death. 
And he did what he promised to do all the way back in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah 32. You remember the promise of the new covenant where the Lord promised in the Old Testament that one day he would give, he would take from you the heart of stone, the heart that's dead toward God and give you a new heart, a heart that loves God and that loves to obey God. That's what true righteousness really is. It's living a life of joyful, willing obedience to Jesus as your master. It's about walking in the Spirit. The Apostle Paul said, we make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. Have you ever had a, a difficult time making a decision and you just can't, I mean, you can't find a scripture for it? There is no scripture that tells you, you know, you should buy the Corvette rather than, the, you know, whatever. So what do you do? And one of the things you can do is ask yourself as an obedient servant, hmm, I wonder what would be more pleasing to the Lord? What do I think from my heart, what do I believe would be more pleasing to the Lord in this case? As Paul words it, verse 16, we are slaves of obedience. Why slaves of obedience? Well, it sounds redundant, and it is intentionally redundant. Slaves of obedience. Because obedience to your master is the defining characteristic of a slave. What do slaves do? Slaves obey. Slaves obey their master. My friend, regardless of how you think of yourself, the fact is you are a slave. You are either a slave to sin or you are a slave to God. And frankly, so much of the confusion and abject depravity on, in our society today is rooted in the false notion that one can be completely free, that you can be an autonomous being, and I would argue that's what happened in the Garden of Eden as well. I can be an, an autonomous being. I can be free to be me. And the word in our day is, you be you. Or you do you. But that, my friends, is an illusion. That's not real. And if you think you're not a slave to sin, do this. Make a list maybe of two or three things that you know are sinful patterns in your life and stop it. Try to stop it. And spend a month or two and, and, and come back and report in. Tell me how it went. You will find out quicker than you could ever imagine how enslaved you are. You are a slave of something. You're a slave of something. And Jesus said in, in John chapter 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's the same thing that John said in his first epistle about practicing sin. It's, it's a, it's the idea here is, as we've talked about before, it's the ongoing lifestyle 
of pursuing sin, practicing sin. Truly, truly, I say to you that anyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And then a few verses down, Jesus says this, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The point is, you are either the slave of sin or you are the slave of Christ. No one is free to do as they please. And the only way to become truly free from the tyranny of sin is to change masters. But you don't have the power to do that. You desperately need a change in masters. Look at your life. Consider the things that you have experienced in life, things that you have caused, things that you have done, things for which you are to this very day ashamed. And the reason you did that was because you were, you were bound to the wrong master. And you can't do any, anything to earn your way into the other master's house. And the only way you can get there is by grace, through faith. Believe. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Believe that he has done what he claims to have done on the cross. He bore all your sins in his body on the cross so that you could be redeemed and you could become a part of his household, one of his servants, one of his slaves. You may be sitting here asking, well, how do I discern whose slave I am? And the answer, you can only discern who your master is by the way that you live. Who do you live for? Who do you obey? The issue here is not what you say about your faith. Everybody says they have faith. You see all the time on the news when there's a tragedy. How in the world are you making through that? I'm a man of faith. I just believe. What do you believe in? I just believe. So you believe in believing. You believe in faith. That's nonsense. What is the substance of your faith? What is the substance of your faith? And so anybody can say that I believe, that I'm a Christian, but the issue is not what you say about your faith. Rather, it's about how you actually live. Here's what James wrote. James, in his short epistle at the, kind of toward the end of the Bible, Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, he says this, What good is it, my brothers, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother is poor or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without ever giving him the things that he needs, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now don't misunderstand here. James is not saying that you earn your salvation by works. 
He's saying the same thing that Paul said in Ephesians 2 in that famous salvation passage, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast, for you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You see, salvation is not by good works, it's for good works. The fruit of salvation is righteousness. It's a, it's a righteous life. What I want you to see, beloved, is that the identity of your master is revealed by what you do and how you live. What master do you serve? If you say that your master is Jesus Christ and you are a partying, drunkard, fill in the blank, and you live like the world lives, this master that you say you belong to is none of yours. So what is your master? Who is your master? Is it God or your pleasures? Jesus made it clear in Luke 16, 13, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. One of them has to be the authority in your life. One of them has to be the one who's giving directions and giving commands, giving you freedoms, giving you license or restricting them. Somebody's got to do that. And there's not going to be two, there's only going to be one. For the believer in Rome, those believers in Rome, all of this was not burdensome. This was wonderful. This is wonderful. Look at verse, seven, look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. And stop there. This is Paul rejoicing in salvation. This is the Romans being invited to rejoice in their salvation. You get to be the doulos of Christ. You get to be the slave of Christ. Listen, your master is unlike anything you can imagine. He owns everything. Like he owns the moon. He owns the sun. He owns the solar system. He owns space. He owns the sea and everything that's in it. He owns your bank account. He owns your car. He owns your children. He owns your wife. He owns your lunch that you are about to enjoy. All of it is his. And if you get any of it, it comes by the sheer grace of God. Why would you not want to be a slave of Christ? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? You say, well, what are the all things? What do you need? What do you need? What does your master believe you need? And whatever that is, it's yours. There is no other master who can do that. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become, listen, listen to how he describes faith, have become 
obedient from the heart. You can become obedient. Isn't that interesting? This is how Paul describes himself. This is how Paul describes Christians. You have become obedient to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, which is synonymous with saying slaves of God, which he says in this text, which is synonymous with slave of Christ. By the way, the word committed here means to hand something over, such as when in Matthew 25, 14, the master hands over his property to his servants. There is a handing over. And at first blush, it may seem, the way it's worded here, that Paul is speaking about the apostles giving sound doctrine to believers. And I think that's the majority of you in the commentaries. Or, or you could say it this way, that the focus is on giving the word of God to believers, and, and certainly that's what happens. But I think Stephen Yule is probably right when he argues that the subject of the sentence is not the standard of teaching. It's not the doctrine. Rather, it's the believer. So Paul's not saying the word of God was committed to us, but rather, listen carefully, we were committed. We were handed over to the word of God. In that sense, the word of God is your master. Jesus rules you through him, through it, through the words of Scripture. The teaching, the Scripture, has become your new master. It's your instructions. We obey Christ by obeying his word. How else do we know what God wants us to do? We know from his word. We don't know how to obey until he tells us. And he has told us. He has turned us over to his word. And so we obey by, we obey Christ by obeying his word. And the next question I had to ask as I was studying was, who committed us to that word? Did we do it ourselves? Did we just say, you know, that seems logical. I think we should do that. Yes, I've made a decision. No, God did that. We were slaves to sin. It's the whole point. And suddenly we became obedient from the heart to the word of God. How did that happen? You know, I've told you the story probably too many times about my, my mom when the when Lord rescued her from cancer and, and she believed. The first evidence that she came to know the Lord was she had an insatiable desire to read the Bible. In all of these years, uh, taking us to church, she had never read the Bible. And suddenly she had an insatiable desire for it. What happened? Something changed. She got a new master. And along with the new master came a new heart. A heart that was alive to God. And so when we talk about obedience, we're talking about the things that God commands us to do 
Again, in 1 John chapter 5, we, we read these beautiful words. And his commandments are not, what's the next word? Burdensome. And Jesus would say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His commandments are the believer's delight. If you're walking in the Spirit, before Christ we were hopeless, without hope in this world, without God in this world. We were enslaved to sin and to legalism, which only increases sin, which we'll find out in the next chapter. But then we experienced the new birth. We became a new creation in Christ. And this has happened to every single believer. Every believer who has ever lived on planet Earth. At the moment of conversion, God unites us with Christ and creates in us a new relationship with sin and a new relationship with righteousness. We become obedient to our new master. Paul calls it in Romans 1.5, the obedience of faith. Isn't that a precious term? The obedience of faith. This is how he describes salvation. It's the obedience of faith. This is what the gospel does. It produces obedience grounded in faith. Stephen Lawson writes, There's no such thing as a faith that doesn't produce obedience, and there is no such thing as a disobedient saving faith. And this brings us to the third point. We've talked about the controversy and the correlation. Now, the conclusion How should believers respond to what Paul is teaching here? Well, he tells us how to respond. Verse 19, he says, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Now, this is where it gets really practical. You know what he means when he says your members? He's talking about your body parts. Here's, here's what he's saying. When Paul speaks of the four members, he's, he's just talking about your hands, your feet, your eyes. Let me, let me break this down. Your eyes means what you look at, what you watch on television or movies. Your eyes. What about your mouth? The things that you say. Are they consistent with your master's commands? Your feet, where you go. Our ears, what do we listen to? Your hands, what do you touch and hold? Just as you once employed all of these precious gifts of God for sexual immorality and lawlessness leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members to righteousness. By the way, let me just pull over and park for a second. I just want to point out to you that we can point out here that this is precisely the experience of what's happening in our culture today. Sexual impurity leading to lawlessness that leads to even more and greater lawlessness. This is exactly what we see. 
And those who practice these things believe they are free. They are pursuing freedom. They demand to be free, to do everything they want, anything they want, without exception. But in reality, they are shackled and in bondage to sin. And the only way to escape is to present yourself to a new master. You present yourself. You get the image of a slave going to a master and saying, would you, would you consider me? This isn't me accepting Jesus. It's, it's whether or not he's going to accept me. I'm presenting myself to you. I'm unworthy of being your slave. But I'm here to ask Just as one presented, you presented your members to slaves of impurity and lawlessness, even so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Sanctification here, spiritual growth. It, it's like this. The master takes you in, into his home. You become his servant, your doulos, his slave his slave, and you find out very quickly that your master loves you. And he's training you all right. He's training you to be just like himself. And as you spend time with him, and you walk with him, and you talk with him, and you listen to him, and you ask questions, and you gain answers, and you apply them, you begin to change. You become more like your master, who is Jesus Christ, that's what sanctification is about. It's a, it's, it means we are be progressively becoming more holy. Sanctus is Latin for holy. We don't have a, an English word that corresponds. We don't say holified. So we borrow from the Latin. It's sanctified. Sanctification is a process of growing into Christ's likeness. The more we obey Christ by obeying his word, the more like our master we become. And the more like our master we become, the more pleasing to the Lord we are. And by the way, as you think about your past life, how exactly did you profit from that way of living? How did you profit from that? Or as Paul writes it like this, for when you were slaves to sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't even care about righteousness. You had no attempt to be pleasing to the Lord. You weren't trying to become like Christ. But what fruit, here's what he says, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the payoff? What was the benefit? For the end of those things is death. That's what you get. That's what you get. By the way, keep that in mind for just a minute as we close up here. What's the payoff of that kind of life living under master sin? Well, the payoff is death. But now, he says, but now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, there's that phrase, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in the end, 
eternal life. It's what you get from this master. The old master gives you death. It's what you, that's the payoff. It's what you get from him. It's what you learn from him, and it's where you go with him. How do we benefit from living in obedience to Jesus? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Benefits of believing in Jesus? We get a changed life. We get a new relationship with sin. We are no longer under its dominion. But we also get a new relationship with righteousness. And the blessed adventure that we have in belonging to Christ is more than anything we could imagine. We belong to the one who owns everything and has given it to us. And so now what do we do? We live for him. We live to do his bidding in this world for his glory. And nothing is more joyful for us than knowing that we are magnifying his glory. I think the whole thing can be summed up in one verse. Verse 23. For, I've said all of this for this reason, this is the conclusion I want you to come to. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, that is the superabounding grace, this justification, that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do Christians believe we can live in sin and do whatever we please? Are you kidding? May it never, ever, ever be. We who are in union with Christ have a new relationship with sin and a new relationship with righteousness because we have a new relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Father, these truths are for all of us. It's so easy just to float down the lazy river of the Christian life, bounce from here to there without any thought as to whether this decision or that is pleasing to you and in obedience to your word. Father, I, I think... The American church has become an unholy church because we have abandoned this relationship with Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would change us, make us more like his son, your son, who lived in perfect obedience to the Father. May we do the same, O oh Lord, for your great glory and for our own great joy, we pray in Jesus' name.